Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithful care for us. Thank you that you speak to us in your word and through your word you are working in our lives in the power of your Holy Spirit to make us wise unto salvation. So we pray that as we study tonight, you would strengthen our faith, you would enliven our hope in all your uh, good promises, and that you would stir up in our hearts a true and genuine love for you and for our neighbors. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so, as I said last time, we uh, started in chapter 5, verse 11, uh, which um, uh, uh, starts an argument uh, which runs uh, halfway through uh, chapter 6, where there's a very clear and and reasonably sturdy theme um, of the author of the letter warning the um, his uh, audience against apostasy and um last time we um particularly we had um uh, we had spent quite a bit of time looking at the opening or the the uh, verses of 4 uh, and 5 and 6 of chapter 6 which speak of the uh, or give warning against uh, those who uh, have tasted of God's goodness, who have uh, who had, um, received God's gifts and then forsake them. That's what apostasy is when you give up on the faith, when you deny uh, deny the faith. Uh, and uh, uh, if you uh, weren't there last week or would uh, or have forgotten what we said, um, I'm not going to rehearse all of that now uh, because it was um, it it it. it to go back to it would take uh, take a fair bit of time uh but the key point is that the, what is being uh the the author here is in a sense he's chastising or or uh, his audience for the fact that he's having to um go back to basics it's, uh, you know we've already laid the foundation we've already received, been instructed in the in the core foundational matters of the christian faith and you ought to be maturing beyond that. You ought to be uh, becoming teachers of others. And yet we are having to deal with basic, uh, with, um, basic things as if you hadn't been taught yet. Uh, but his particularly, his particular concern is that he's clearly worried about, uh, the Christians to whom he's writing being in danger of apostasy, of giving, uh, of uh, forsaking the faith, of denying, uh, the faith. And therefore, he warns them against that uh, by pointing out that if you do that, having received the forgiveness of sins, having received uh, enlightenment, as I say, having been baptized, having received the Holy Spirit, having uh, received the um, uh, eat, eaten uh, of the body of Christ and, and, and drunk in the uh, blood of Christ, the heaven, the, tasted the heavenly gift, as he puts it, tasted the goodness of the word and the powers of the age come, and then fall away, then uh, forsake it, you are guilty of crucifying again the Son of God. Um, which essentially is, is, is as if you're saying that, uh, you know, Jesus died for you, and you received this uh, gift of uh, Christ's crucifixion for you as a gift, and now you're saying, actually, no, I don't. I, um, you, you are you're sort of nailing Jesus back onto the cross and saying, actually, no, I, I, I don't want any of that. And therefore, you hold him in contempt 
which puts you in a worse position than you were before because you have dealt, uh, you have tr- treated God's gift of salvation with contempt. So that's the argument uh, from last time. As I said, if you, um, if you missed it and you would like the detail, uh, the, the flesh on the bones of that, I'm afraid you have to go back and listen to last week's uh, Bible study, um, uh, <coughs> where, where that's all laid out. What I like to do too, and now is to carry on from there. Um, and, um, and see how the, how the argument develops. So what, uh, what I'd like to do, if, if we could have a volunteer, please, to read, but we will sort of overlap a little bit. So read from verse onwards. We will discuss from verse 7 onwards, but just to get the flow of the argument, from verse 4 to verse 12, please, if somebody could read for, for us, that would be great. Uh, I could read. Thank you. So verse 4 onwards. Verse 4 to verse 12. Okay. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the power powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they have crucified for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes uh, comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears fawns and briars, it is rejected and near to being earthed whose end is to be burnt. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labour of love, which you have shown towards his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. Thank you. Okay, so there is, that's, that's the, uh, kind of the full, uh, argument from first, uh, four onwards. So, so with the proviso I already gave that we, we weren't, I don't want to, um, so complete rehearse what we discussed last time. Any, any initial thoughts, comments, questions on that, on what we just read? And particularly from verse six onwards. Verse it, was very, it was very different from my Bible, so I can't, Seem different anyway in places. It's a different translation, yes, but yeah, yeah I'm reading the it's, New King James. Yeah, it said the yeah. same things, it's just in a slightly phrase it somewhat differently. Okay. Any questions or thoughts to begin with? Adrian. 
mute. Hang on. Yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm muting Strebel there. I just it just puzzles me if um, if the word clearly says that uh, a genuine believer can fall away and lose their salvation. Why why do the reforms say say once saved always saved? Uh, <clears throat> I can't speak for them. Um, so you're, you're, again, you're referring to the doctrine of the perseverance of the elect or perseverance of the saints. That is part of, uh, so, uh, traditional standard reformed teaching. Um, there are passages in, for example, the gospel of John chapter 10, where Jesus says that my sheep know my, you know, hear my voice, they know them. They know, and, uh, said, uh, no one can snatch them. Out of the father's hand. Yeah, a third party can't do it. But yeah, so that's that's it's, pass- it's, it's passages like that that are the that's that's where the, that doctrine comes from. From passages like that, and I think a general incredulity that the Holy Spirit would enter a person and leave again—that God somehow God, if if God has given somebody His Holy Spirit, that there could be any power. You know, when it says in Romans eight, there's nothing. Uh, nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in yeah. Christ Jesus. So, well, okay, if that's the case, then then those who are genuinely Christians must therefore be secure. Of course, the, um, there is uh, to to deal with. The, you have to then deal with the um, you have to deal with the reality that there are people who appear to have been genuine Christians who then give up the faith. So what, what about that? What's that all about? And there are different ways that, that, that tends to be argued, but it tends to boil down to, well, that shows then that they weren't actually genuine Christians. Um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the so-called true Scotsman fallacy. Do you know that uh, the fallacy is, it's the, it's <clears throat> fallacy being a, a, a fault, a, an argument with faulty logic. And this true Scotsman fallacy is that all true Scotsmen um, I can't remember what it is, pretty, uh, eat porridge, put, put it that way. I said, all true Scotsmen eat porridge. And if you point out, well, you know, MacDonald down in the next, next valley doesn't eat porridge. Well, in that case, he's not a true Scotsman. Um, the idea that, you know, it becomes very quickly a circular argument. So it's there, there's always that sort of true Scotsman danger with, with this as well. But this is the reason why, uh, the Lutheran confessions, for example, do not agree with the reformed on this point. And it does seem that the, 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 the frequency and so, and, uh, severity of the warnings in the New Testament against forsaking their faith, uh, suggest that it's not, that the, that it's, it's a, it's a genuine and real possibility, uh, according to the New Testament that we might, in fact, fall away. Um, I think the point of, the point of the, um, uh, you know, these, the passages like in John 10 when Jesus said, you know, that no one will snatch us out of the Father's hand is, is not to say that means that there is no possibility of, of apostasy. There's no possibility of losing faith. That rather what he's saying that there is, there is no power greater than God. There's, you know, you know, no, no one can come and steal us from God. But that's a very different question from, you know, uh, if, if one were to extend that metaphor from Jesus, no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand, but if you're stupid enough to walk off it, that's a different matter. Okay. Yeah, thank you. 
Anything, uh, anything else? Okay, so if not, let's let's start then. So last time we, as uh, so we got to the end of verse uh, six, um, and verse seven starts with the word "for." I, it continues the same argument. So it's impossible to restore again those who have uh, tasted of God's goodness and fallen away because they are holding Jesus Christ to contempt and crucify Him again. For Said land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who, for whose sake it is cultivated, receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burnt. Now, this at this point, um, I I I have to confess that I was uh, a little bit disappointed. When I was looking, I looked in my Bible for, uh, cross references. There are quite a few, but not as many as I would have liked to have seen. So this, these two verses are completely replete, uh, with the Old Testament allusions. This, this, uh, built and also, uh, allusions to the New Testament. So you, let's, let's see if we can uh, get any cross references. What, where does this language uh, uh, come from in elsewhere in the Bible? Well, then John the Baptist warned that, so I think he was quoting the Old Testament, that the, the wicked he will burn, burn up like chaff. Okay, so it's the language of being burned up like chaff, and that of, and that comes from various places, but particularly Malachi, the wicked will be stubble, uh, will be burnt like, uh, burnt like chaff. Others? Then in Matthew, it talks about this, uh, these thorns and, uh, you know, it's kind of the, the, the wrong growth. When, I, when we're talking about the good tree and a bad tree. Okay, so we've got the tree, uh, the tree that produces good fruit and tree that produces bad fruit. Yes. Yes, so that's in, uh, that's in chapter seven of Matthew in uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Any others? When it talks about, um, hang on, what is it? Uh, of which um mixed rain that often comes comes upon it. Is that a reference to rain falling on the just and the unjust or uh well it could be, yes. Uh Jesus talking about God's goodness uh being displayed in the fact that uh you know the rain rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. Uh so rain often I mean this is this is a uh, very telling of the of of the uh, origins of of the biblical world being the, in the Mediterranean, where rain, generally speaking, is is seen as a sign of blessing, with the exception of the flood, it's a sign of blessing in an arid, you know, semi-arid climate. So it's a sign of refreshment and and uh, and a source of life. Uh, Carol, go ahead. Um, is it a, a seen to remind me of the? Uh... Uh, eviction of Adam and Eve out of the garden and the earth being cursed. Oh, very good. Yes. Yes. So Genesis three, yeah. earth, yeah. Is, yeah, earth is cursed and, uh, and the specific reference that thorns and thistles will produce fruit. Yes. Yes. And hence the language of being cursed. It bears thorns and thistles is worthless near to being cursed. Mm. So very good. Yes. 
So that takes us right back to that. And obviously that's a, a curse or punishment for disobedience to God and the forsaking of original righteousness. So there's a very close parallel there. So, so clearly, uh, the minds are being cast to what happened right at the beginning of the Bible when people forsook the goodness of God. So it gives it a very serious, um, serious uh, tone. Anything else? There's the parable of the sower. Tell us more. Um, they, the, the land, the, it was this parable of the ground, I think, isn't it, rather than the sower, the soil. Mm. So the mm. soil that bears thorns and thistles would be the one that the um, cares and pleasures of this life um, smother the seed. Very good. Exactly, yes. And, and the seed that falls in the rocky soil with, with us when there's persecution. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Both, uh, both of those are there. And I think in this particular case, it's, it's, you know, there is a Jesus, obviously, I mean, Jesus, when he talks about, uh, songs and thistles probably has Genesis three in mind as well. Uh, but, uh, certainly Jesus speaks specifically of those who give up the faith, who for a time, uh, rejoice in the word and, but do not bear fruit. Um, as opposed to verse seven, a crop that is useful for those for whose sake is cultivated. In other words, a crop that produces uh, fruit. Um, John the Baptist, we already referred to also, but bear fruit uh, in keeping with repentance, uh, John says uh, in John the Baptist before uh, Jesus' baptism. Uh, there are some others as well. Um, slightly, uh, so uh, 60, uh, Psalm 65 speaks of uh, God's blessing on his people. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, uh, settling its ridges, softening its showers and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. So the idea that God's blessing, when God's blessing falls on the, on the earth, whether literally uh, in the showers or, or uh, spiritually or metaphorically, uh, it leads to fruitfulness. And fruitfulness obviously is uh, is something that you wait for at the end. In most of most of the growing season, there is no fruit. The fruit comes right at the end uh, when everything else is done, and that's the last thing before harvest. Uh, in Isaiah chapter five, we've got the parable of the Lord's vineyard, um, <clears throat> where the Lord planted a vineyard, uh, that being a um, a metaphor for Israel, he built a watchtower in the midst of it, he hewed out wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove his hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down his wall. It shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or honed, and bronze, a briars and thorns shall grow up, uh, grow up. And I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. So again, this is a, 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 the, a, a parable in Isaiah of God forsaking Israel, uh, for unfaithfulness. Again, not producing the fruit that he looked for. So there's, there's the key. So the, the, you know, uh, the, and the very background of this all is the curse for rebellion in the garden by Adam and Eve. And therefore the loss of, uh, original righteousness, the turning against God's goodness, questioning God's word and following the temptation of, 
of the serpent, of, of Satan. And then all the language of punishment that comes for uh, comes upon sin and particularly on disobedience and on unfaithfulness and unfruitfulness uh, on the one hand, but then on the other hand, those who are, you know, the, the, the land that is blessed by the rain, um, uh, receives a blessing, you know, a, a, a land that produces a, a crop that is, is a best fruit will receive a blessing. And so, Behind that, you know, the, the, the central theme therefore here is, uh, is perseverance and lasting to the end of the course, being there at harvest time, producing, being found to produce, uh, a harvest. Jesus himself speaks of the uh, parable of the fig tree, you know, which doesn't produce fruit. And the owner of the fig tree says, you know, wants to cut it down. And the garden says, give it one more year. I will dig around it and, and I'll lay manure on it. And, and if it still doesn't produce fruit next year, then you can cut it down. And so there is constantly this, this, this language of bearing fruit. And of course, the question is, what does it mean to bear fruit? And that's my question to you. The growth of your faith. But what is the fruit? So if your faith grows, what is the fruit that comes out of it? What's the, what's the end product? You live in, with God forever in, in heaven. Uh, the end that's, of it. that's the reward. What's the fruit? The fruit of the spirit? You're muted. No, you're not muted, Jackie. We could hear that. Yeah. Fruit of the spirit. Which Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, mm-hmm. self-control. Yeah. It's the fruit of your good works as well. Tell me more about that. Um, God has um, made for us good works for us to do as Christians. And they are, well, they're whatever he gives us to do, but they are sort of being a good wife, being a good husband. Vocation. They're vocational sort of things, a lot of mm. them. And doing good for our neighbours, looking after people and that's the thing yep very good so faith a faith that is not unfruitful but faith that is fruitful that leads to a transformation a change a a a um uh through the you know the, it's it's in a sense it's, it's in keeping with the, the idea of the fruits of the spirit that the holy spirit is not ineffective ineffective in us but is effective as a as a and an outworking of faith but it's not just about what we end up doing or what we end up being like, but rather that it, it is, as Rosemary said, it's about the, our faith being, being brought to fruition or fulfillment, um, which is ultimately, you know, that, that is at the return of Christ when those who are his will be, uh, will be gathered to him. And the key point of this passage is passage is not about, uh, watching for fruit that's not the point and this is by the way um adrian at the beginning asked about the the teaching about once saved always saved um the the one of the pastoral um and so uh, problems that comes from that teaching is that if there are if all genuine christians will persevere but then there are other christians who look genuine who don't persevere 
then how do I know that I'm one of the genuine ones and not one of the ones who's actually going to not persevere? Because basically, if the genuine Christians persevere, then everybody else will not. So which am I and how do I know? And very frequently, the answer is, well, genuine faith leads, it produces fruit. So am I a true Christian or not? I start staring at my own fruit as you know the outcome. And that very easily can become um, an exercise in just staring at yourself mm-hmm. and judging, you know, trying to figure out, am I, am I, am I actually, am, is my faith genuine? Am I actually doing good works? Am I, am I growing in godliness or not? Or am I in fact a fraud? And though it's not its intention, very frequently it's in this actual, the, the real life impact is that it leads people to take their eyes off Jesus and start to do lots of self-examination, which I can assure you, if you hadn't noticed yet in your life, is not genuinely, generally speaking, good for your mm-hmm. spiritual well-being to be regarding yourself lots and lots. It's a bit like, you know, if, if you stand in front of the mirror and start observing your nose for long enough, however dainty and beautiful it might be, it begins to look a bit odd after a while, just through staring at it. And if you start staring at your Christian life, however pretty it might seem, it will you'll begin to notice all kinds of things wrong with it, which will undermine your faith. So I don't want this. I, you know, the, as I said, the purpose of this passage is not to say, look, guys, we need more fruit from you. Rather than what he's saying, what, what, what is required is perseverance. Not falling away, not turning away, not giving up before you get to the harvest. That's the point. Staying the course. Mm-hmm. And that's not about trying harder or being a, you know, uh, doing this or being that, but rather it's about continuing to receive the word and it is the word itself that produces faith in us it is the word also that trains us and empowers us to live the kind of life that the word calls us to live it's the work of the holy spirit to give us repentance and to enable us to repent it is the work of the holy spirit in us that transforms our minds and therefore also leads to any transformational life that there is and so what we need to do is to seek that rain, if you like, and, and, and seek to be nourished by the word and not be offended by the cross of Christ. Whether of the cross itself and, and the kind of shame that was visited upon Jesus or our sharing in it and the, and the, uh, and the tribulations and the persecutions that come with it upon us. That's what we are talking about here. And the, but the warning is stern and stark. The rain falls on the, on the ground and it produces fruit. It will receive a blessing. If not, and instead of producing what the, what the word has sown, but produces something else, then it, it will be, and now notice it doesn't say it's cursed. It's near to being cursed. So there's that kind of little glimmer of this, you know, it doesn't say you are definitely cursed, but you are, you are very much in danger of it. Yeah. Is that, does that make sense of it? And if you, and if you think of, think of that old, the Old Testament background to it and the background in the teaching of Jesus, 
then what we are clearly dealing with is a, is warning. You know, Paul writes to the Corinthians that these things, the, these things were written for their instruction, but as, you know, but for our warning. So when we look at what happened to Israel in the wilderness, when we look at what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden, when we look at, uh, what happened to, uh, Israel later on during the kingdom when, when they, when they lapsed and they were ultimately destroyed and taken to exile, that has a warning to us. Learn from that. And we will come to that in just a moment. Uh, this idea of, uh, of, of learning from others. So that's the negative lesson from others. Learn from their error. And just when he's beginning to sound, uh, hopelessly harsh, verse nine says, but though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, agapetoi, uh, beloved, um, we feel sure of better things. So these are the dangers. These, this is what, these are the, uh, this is what will happen to those, but we are sure that this will not be the case with you. And he calls them beloved. So he, you know, it's almost like he realized, okay, I mustn't say, I mustn't go any further than this in my, in, in my chastisement before they begin to be crushed by this chastisement. And he turns around and almost as a relents and, 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 uh, excuses or uh, apologizes for almost for the way he speaks. We are sure of better things. We feel sure of better things. Um, things that belong to salvation. Four and verse 10. God is not so unjust so as to overlook your work and the love you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. There's your fruit. So he is saying, you have been bearing fruit. You have not been unfruitful in your faith. And notice that. Um, again, this is not a letter about good works, but every letter, every writing in the New Testament also has things to say about good works. Have you heard this said often to you? Have you heard this in, in sermons preached? God will not overlook your work and the love that you do have. It's a sort of rhetorical question, really, because I know that it's not very common for preachers to preach like this. Generally speaking, we tend to be told that everything that we do is sinful and we cannot merit our own salvation and therefore our good works don't really count for anything uh we rely on god's grace all of which is true in the matter of justification that is to say our good works have no role in establishing our relationship with god we don't enter enter into any kind of bargain and say god i've done this 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 and this now what you know what what will you give me our justification, our, the, the, the basis, the ground of our actually being God's children is entirely in the work of Christ. But this true faith, although we are saved by faith alone, this saving faith is never alone. And it says very specifically, God is not so unjust, not, not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm just reminded of the, uh, the message of the churches in Revelation. We've got, um, I mean, just one example to Ephesus. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, etc., etc. Hmm. And that, that, that's the thing. I mean, we have like the parables of Jesus to, uh, talk about the talents, uh, you know, and, and what does, what does, what does the, uh, uh, master say to those who have been faithful that has well done you good and faithful servant? Um, in the, in a sermon on the mount, Jesus says, you know, when you give alms, when you pray, when you fast, don't do like this, do like this. And your heavenly father who sees in secret will reward you. Which is to say that God doesn't say, go and do this, but actually, I'm just getting you to do so as to keep you busy. It doesn't count for anything. Because that would be unjust. Now, it's true that we cannot do God's will perfectly. But that's not the point. That's not the purpose of it. The purpose is not to reach perfection. The purpose is to act out of the character that we have been given or out of the role to which you're the calling, you know, as Paul says, you know, more than once, you talk about um, living lives that are worthy of our calling. What is our calling? We're children of God. Okay, so we act like children of God. And there's a children bit, which means that we're not fully mature and fully skillful yet, but we are children of God. So we act according to what pertains to the kingdom of God as opposed to not. And God is not unjust. If he told you to do it, if he did it, he will not overlook that. And so he encourages them with the fact that, look at, you know, he says, if you look at, look at that, you know, God, you, you are doing God's will. You have worked and you have shown love for God's name in serving the saints. And again, that's a beautiful thing, you know, what, you know, what, what does it show if, if, if Christians serve other Christians, they are showing love for the name of God because you're serving other Christians because they are Christians. And this, this, this always reminds me of a passage that I've, I've quoted, uh, many times in Bible studies, uh, from, um, a little book. Uh, that's written in the 1930s by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, called Life Together, who's written for a, you know, uh, for an underground seminary for training pastors outside the official church structures, uh, away from the kind of control of the Nazi party. Um, and he wrote a, a, this sort of manual for how to live together, uh, in a Christian community. And one of the, one of the fundamental insights of that book, which I think is very, very helpful, is that Christians, meet other Christians always indirectly. We always encounter one another in Christ and through Christ. So when one Christian meets another Christian, it's like it in a it's like a in a hand uh rubbing the belly. It all happens through the head. And so when one Christian meets another Christian, they are actually meeting someone who's in Christ. So Jesus is always the one who mediates our relationship, relationships with one another as well. So when we serve one another in love, we are showing or demonstrating a love for God. Hence the small catechism at every commandment, 
says we should fear and love God so that we do not lie about our neighbor. We should fear and love God so that we do not physically hurt or harm our neighbor. We should fear and love God so that we do not lie or deceive by his name, and so on. So all this is, it's the love of God that motivates us. We do these things not because, you know, Joe Boggs is so lovely that I can't help loving him. No, I will show him love because he belongs to Christ. Jesus himself says this, you know, if anyone gives a, you know, gives a drink, a, a cup of water to one of these little, at least, you know, these little ones, for my name's sake. Whoever um, shows love to a prophet because he's a prophet will receive the prophet's reward. So this is really fundamental aspect of Christian life because it's, let's face it, um, again, it's not difficult to demonstrate. Christian, co- Christian communities tend to be quite odd. Congregations tend to be an odd gathering of people because we're not brought together as like-minded people or similar kind of t- types of people, at least in an ideal Christian church, but we are, we are a a strange collection assortment of people who would normally never socialize with one another, but we just happen to be members of the church, and so we do, as we're thrown together. And that's a great richness of the church, but it's also a challenge. Because if you, you know, if you join your local such and such club, because that's your hobby, you find all these other people who have similar interests as you, but not in the church. This is already in the early church. This is a real challenge. And we see it again in like first Corinthians, which is challenge because you had, uh, people coming together in an, what in the, in that world was an intimate setting of sharing a meal, cutting across all the different layers of society. And as I've explained many times before, you know, people used to interact in very layered way, stratified way. The upper class is stuck to the upper class. The middle class is stuck together. Bottom, and so, and and they didn't mix across because it was it was just considered to be inappropriate. It was just not done. It was it was it was wrong. And all of a sudden, you got this Christian congregation where slaves and slave owners were, you know, elbow to elbow at the table. And it's very odd. And yet, because of the name of Christ, they showed love to one another. And that's. That's the kind of Christian life that, which is, is simply assumed here. It's not that he's, he's trying to instruct them, is that he, he just noticed this is how you're living. I notice, by the way, that the, the, the you here is a plural you. So he's not saying that, you know, uh, you know, Bob and Phil and, 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 uh, and Karen, you, 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 you really are showing fruit. No, you as a community, you as a church, you as a congregation are showing the fruitfulness of God's, God's work amongst you by showing love. So it again, it's a Christianity as a communal experience rather than just a lots of bunch of individuals who just happen to be coming together. We're members of a body. And so the good works of the church are also good works of the church, the whole whole community, not just this individual or that. Any any thoughts on that? Because it's it's obviously a sometimes e- easy to um, easy to misunderstand and and turn into legalism, but it's also I think in our circles it's easy to neglect and just say oh we're all sinners and and kind of move move away from it too quickly. I think the, the uh, Paul's teaching, when he's tell, telling about what the congregation is like, 
with all, like some some is like you know head head and and feet and and ears and eyes and and hands you know it, it illustrates very well you know what kind of a bunch of people we are and how we all need each other not just to serve each other but also we need each other yes yes absolutely okay, go ahead uh, what's um what about the problem of if you're meeting with these other groups and they're not Christians, are you in trouble with the Lord for being with them or do you just try and help them to try and believe in God or something or just ignore what's going on? And How do you mean? So just socialising with other people than Christians? Yeah, well, everyone socialises with people that aren't Christians, but they've got to accept that the way they are or the way they think. It's very difficult sometimes when, especially if you're in a marriage where there's no other Christian except yourself, then you have got trouble in one way or the other. Well, that make trouble for the person who's got to do that. So what's your question? Are they in trouble eventually because they were with people that weren't believers? Why would you be? I don't know. I'm not quite sure I understand what, why they would be, why, why somebody would be in trouble for being surrounded by unbelievers. What kind of I trouble? don't know. It's just that as well, mental travel of working out how, how you feel, you feel good about God and they don't. So then uh, you can. Obviously, obviously it's difficult. And particularly within a family, it's, it's difficult if you don't share the faith. But if your question was, do you get into trouble with God? You don't get into trouble. You don't get into trouble with God for what other people are. No. God doesn't, God doesn't punish you for other people's sins. No. And if Christians didn't mix with non-Christians, then the uh, gospel would stop spreading pretty quickly. Um, so, yeah, so the, the, the New Testament itself has, has deals with more, more than one place with the, the difficulty of, of, for example, is specifically wives who are married to husbands who do not, who, who aren't believers. Mm. There are, you know, First Corinthians and One Peter both deal with that question. It's, it's a genuine problem when you find yourself in that situation. Um, and you, it's, it's, it's hard. And, you know, if you, if you're not married, um, then I will say to you, do not, do not marry an unbeliever. If for no other reasons, then why would you make your own life so hard? And if you, uh, you know, if if that's you, but obviously, if you're already married, you are already married, then you know you have to live with that. And, and same with friendship groups. I mean, mm-hmm. I think all, everybody, everybody will almost inevitably have, almost everybody will inevitably have friends who 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 share the faith and others who don't. But we're not responsible. We're not responsible for their faith. That's not, you know, it's not our work. But obviously, we should not hide our uh, light under a bushel either. Not hide our faith. Carol. All right. Um. Well, I think it's just a question of you obviously do have friends who are not believers, but you don't have to go down the route that they go down. And you can abstain for things that they might be going to take part in that you want to not go to. 
And if they're friends, I find if they're friends, they respect that, actually. Mm. Might not think very well of you, but they do. <laughs> they just say, oh, that's just her. Very often it's it's the way that we are. Just get about, you know, get on with our everyday lives. That is is a powerful testimony to others. Mm. I don't think we see if we have good our uh, uh, fruits of the spirit that mm. we were talking about. I don't think we see it for ourselves. It's other people who see it. In... That's often the case because if if we have if we have we shouldn't be conscious of it. Well, if you have tender, I mean. There, I, I remember as a teenager, and I was, uh, I can't remember where it was, I was, basically I was, uh, at one point somebody was teaching us that in the, if you notice your good works and they're wasted, because then that, you know, that, then it's no longer a good work. So, well, that, uh, subsequently I've, I looked for that particular teaching in my Bible and thankfully I haven't found it. Because if we have been told to, you know, the good works can be listed, you know, what is a good work? Good work is Living our lives according to Ten Commandments. So if you can't notice it, then it's a bit jolly difficult to, uh, uh, you know, jolly difficult to actually go about with it. So if, you know, if it says, "Yeah, feed the hungry," and you see a hungry person, you feed them, it's really hard not to notice. Cause oh you well, just... yeah, that's obvious. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But obviously, there is. I mean, we if we are if we have tender consciences instructed by God's word, then we will also be aware of our sinfulness and our weakness and the oh, yeah. of our hearts. But but the whole point in no, none of the point of this is to accumulate some sort of a record of merit. No. It's not about that. The record of merit is, is already, there. there's no room in the record of merit because Jesus filled it all up. <laughs> it's about serving in love. It's about acting as if it's true what God said. If God really said uh, that the greatest virtue of all is love, if God really said uh, that he will care for us and we should care for one another. If it's really true, then we just, okay, so if it's true, then we act upon that truth. You know, why did, why did almost the entire nation, um, stop going out of their houses a couple of years ago? Why did people, why did people wear masks? Why did people get these vaccinations that had only just been invented? Because they, you know, almost everybody believed that it was true what they told us, that this needs to be done, and they, and people just did it. So we had faith in what we, what we're being told. And if God tells us that this is the good life, this is what, what it looks like to be a, 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 a member of God, my kingdom. Oh, if that's true, then that might better, better, better just live like that then. So it's an outworking, it's a fruit of faith, it's not uh, you know, it's 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 not the manure at the roots; it's the apples on the branches, which is the last thing that comes out when everything else is in place. Hence, that passage in Matthew: "Good tree produces good fruit; a bad tree produces bad fruit." So, if there isn't fruit, you need to fix the tree. You need to fix, you know, you need to start feeding this soul something else, namely the gospel and and proper instruction, God's word. And the word itself produces these things. God, through the word, produces these things in us. Let's uh, let's go on. Uh, so that was verse. So in verse ten, verse eleven. So having having already commended them, having having spoken harshly in the previous verses, he then softens his stance and commends them for the service that they do, and reassures them. Or comforts them that God will not overlook this. He's not forgotten this. 
and and again just to uh, to to finish that, uh, that the point is that the implication of course being that if they feel hard done by because they're persecuted so like you know where is god you know we we you know we we're being faithful to god and look at all this and and look what's happening to us which happens very easily so you know god is not unjust he's he's not going to overlook that it's just not harvest time yet you need to keep going and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So it's not just about having this hope, but holding on to it till the end. So you can see constantly, again, I'm just repeating myself now because the text repeats itself. That's the concern. Perseverance to the end. So that you may not be or become, the verb means both things, sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. And this sluggish um, is the, it's the kind of idea of laziness or kind of running out of running out of zeal, running out of uh, earnestness, giving up and kind of put downing tools and slowing down. Paul writes about the, uh, you know, uses the example of the athlete. The athlete who trains and then runs to the race to the end and doesn't stop. And Having already given this sort of negative, if you like, um, uh, negative image of what to avoid, you know, do not be like those who, negative imitation, he now says, turns to the imitation of those who through faith, faith and patience inherit the promises. Who are they? Well, he gives us a very specific example of Abraham. And just before we read that, uh, it's a particularly uh, prominent feature of this letter, and we get to whole of chapter 11, long chapter, and this idea of imitating uh, the saints, and imitate, and, and if to the right, in, in this letter particularly, it's the imitation of Old Testament saints. But of course, that's not particularly unique to Hebrews. Where else does the Bible speak of this? Idea of imitating saints. Remember. <laughs> well, was it Paul in one of his other letters? Be imitators of us, that we were reading recently. Yes, be imitators of me. Exactly. First Thessalonians, for example. Yes, yes. yes be imitators of me. Yes. So he, as a mature Christian, sets himself as an example for new Christians to say, okay, learn from us. Mm. Yeah. Jesus commands the people of Nineveh who repented. Yes, uh, 
he uh, yeah so the people of Nineveh who repented and then there's a negative exa- example of course of for example of Sodom and Gomorrah and and so on <laughs> so we have this idea of imitation of course uh Jesus himself says come to me all who are weary and heavy laden I will give you rest learn from me oh yes learn from me and so we are called to imitation the imitation of Christ ultimately because Jesus is the um is the perfect man perfect human but then also we hold you know we we can look to others other christians m- mature christians uh, as examples examples of those or of their faith and of their good works I and mean, this is in the um for example in the uh in the uh, at the reformation the oxford confession there's a an article on the uh, um invocation of the saints uh, which makes very clear the point that we do not pray to or through the saints. You know, even if the dead are conscious and praying for us, which is all perfectly possible and great, we have no promises concerning. So we don't turn to Mary or Peter or, or, or Auntie Myrtle or anybody else, uh, to pray for us because there are no promises concerning that. However, there is a proper regard for the saints which is to give thanks to God for them and his work amongst them, in them, and then to imitate their faith and to imitate their good works. And we can all, I mean, if if you can't think of anybody else, then we'll go to the New Testament, look at the apostles, or Mary Magdalene, or Mary, the mother of Jesus. But they're, of course, in the history of the, of the church subsequently as well. Christians would say, well, look at that. And learn from it. Learn from, you know, look at Lynn, how God worked in their lives. And we, we look at them and we know that none of them was perfect. Mary wasn't, you know, Mary, Mary got the wrong end of the stick too from time to time. But nevertheless, her words, be done to me according to your word. I mean, what better way to live than, you know, that's, if you're ever going to have a motto for life, hers was a pretty good one. Let it be done to me according to your word. That's basically what it is to be a Christian. Let God's word be true to us and in us. And then imitate her or imitate St. Paul or imitate St. Augustine or Katharina Luther, uh, Luther, Luther's wife, you know, he was able to do what he was doing because she did what she did and all, there are all sorts of, all these are Christian examples for us. Um, very important. But here we have the particular promise of Abraham, and of course, Abraham again for particularly for Jewish Christians, but for all Christians, Abraham is the father of our faith. He is the man of faith in the Old Testament, the kind of the exemplary man of faith. Abraham believed God and he was counted to him as righteousness, it says in Genesis. So could we read please from verse 13 to the end? I will. Thank you. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And this Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an earth is final for confirmation. 
So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs and the promise of the unchangeable characteristics of his purpose, he guaranteed it with his oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast author, anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Matildedek. Sonia, Melchizedek. Oh, well, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, matters makes all the difference. Melchizedek. <laughs> we're going to have to practice that because we're going to come across Melchizedek a lot in the next few chapters. Um, uh, we'll, yeah, we'll hear, we'll hear a lot about him. So, uh, thoughts, questions. Very encouraging. Mm. Tell me why. Because it's pointing out all the good things that Abraham did and his reward because of it. His faith was rewarded. And what does that tell then? What does that tell tell you, uh, if you like, for you or about you? You can try to do the same things. We will get the same blessings. We will, that we will have those. Indeed. So what what was true of God's dealings with Abraham is all will also be true of God's dealings with us. Anything else? I think the heading is very good. We're going to see um, starting from the the thirteenth, the certainty of God's promise. Yeah, because I think that that is something which is the certainty. And notice what it what 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 he does. There's the the argument pivots. So you know, there's been this focus on you. Do not you know? You do not do not fall. Do not lapse. You know you need to you know you need to be persevere to the end to be fruitful and look at as you are being. For but then said, um, in order to be sluggish, be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And remember, inheritance is a, ultimately a passive matter. It's what you receive. You inherit promises. In other words, somebody gives, makes promises. Somebody else who makes them. God is the one who is actually active, fundamentally and ultimately. Abraham having paid, so, um, God made promise to Abraham. He swore by himself, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Now, remember, this is Abraham who's old, married to Sarah who's also old. And the blessing is that I will bless you and multiply you when he and his wife were beyond the years of childbearing. So the promise is improbable. And seemingly impossible. And yet we're told in Genesis, Abraham believed God. 
Now we know that his faith was imperfect and weak, and he misunderstood it, so he thought, oh, I need to, I need to do something about this. And so next thing we have is Hagar gives birth to Ishmael. And God said, no, 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 that's not what I meant. Sarah, your wife, will give you a son. And, and remember, Hagar became Abraham's concubine by this act. And one of the things about, you know, the difference between a wife and a concubine in the ancient world was that the children of wives were heirs, children of concubines were not. So Ishmael would only have been an heir of Abraham by Abraham's decision. If he decided, like, you know, when, you know, sometimes you, you read this in, in history of like, a, of royal houses in this, in, in, in Europe, let's say a few hundred years ago, where kings would have mistresses and they might have all kinds of children that are not, not, of heirs, and every now and then you you will hear that a king would acknowledge a son by a mistress, and then they will get a title and whatever. And so Henry the Eighth had you know Fitzroy, whatever, and and you know those his 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 uh, bastard son who 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 died, but never that you know was he he acknowledged this child as as his own, and and this child then became would never be a king, but would actually got a title and got a you know and so on was recognised. But that was by the gift of the father. But God didn't say, I will, I will give you an opportunity to find yourself an heir. So no, I will bless you. I will multiply you. And say so God intervenes in a way that goes contrary to nature, which knowledge and understanding cannot grasp because it goes against knowledge and understanding. But faith can, because faith can believe that God, what God says God can do. And what God promises he will do. Which is why faith and sight are very frequently at odds. Mm. Think of doubting Thomas. You know, oh, I believe now. Well, it's, you don't believe, you just, you've just found out. That's not faith. You didn't trust the word. You didn't trust the testimony of those who, who told you. You be, you believe because you have no choice. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Hearing is is believing, not seeing. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. I mean, we don't know how old Abraham was when he married, but we can be fairly confident that this is, we're told, by decades here. I mean, Ishmael was probably about 12 when Isaac was born. So this is, we're talking like, decade and a half nearly after the promise was given that Isaac is finally born. And one father having one son is hardly multiplication, is it? <laughs> you know, the, the replacement rate, what, what do they say? That in the general population, the replacement rate birth rate is 2.4 children per woman or something like that. In the UK, we are, we are, we are below that now. So the population is shrinking. Hence the need for immigration and all that kind of stuff and all kinds of fun political topics that we could be discussing uh, on another night. Um, but to multiply means that you end up with more than you began with. And Abraham and Sarah is two and Isaac is one. So when did Abraham actually get to see the multiplication? He didn't. Mm-hmm. He never saw it. 
it was beyond the horizon of his own lifetime, but he believed God. It did happen. His grandson, Jacob, by the time he goes to Egypt, is that's 70 persons. That's on top of Joseph's household. And then by the time, 430 years later, they, they leave Egypt, we're talking about a very large number of people indeed, all out of Abraham. But that's 430 years. That's half a millennium from from the promise. You know, imagine that one of your ancestors received a promise in 1493. And here you are now. And you get to see the fruit. It's a long way. Abraham nevertheless obtained the promise, having patiently waited. And you can imagine what it must have been like, you know, on, on those years of travel and all those years of praying and hoping for an heir and not receiving one. And even after God has spoken, wait, 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 and nothing happened. But Abraham patiently waited because God had promised. For God, you know, so people swear by something greater than themselves, that in all their disputes, an oath is a final, is final for confirmation. As, as is still the case in our courts of law, for example. If you declare something under oath, that is considered to be more weighty than if you do not under oath. If you say something that's not true under oath, is perjury. And perjury is worse than a lie. It's a lie that lands you in prison. But so God is a desire to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed with an oath. <clears throat> so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we have uh, might have strong encouragement. Now, what are the two unchangeable things? God's oath so for God's and, and his oath. God's promise and God's oath. So first he says it, and that's unchangeable because it's impossible for God to lie. And then there's the oath that he swears to guarantee that promise in which it's impossible for God to lie. So it's a double truth. Why is it impossible for God to lie? Because he's perfect. <laughs> yes. He will not go against his own character. He cannot act against his character, which is the same mm. thing. So God cannot lie, um, not because he's, he, he lacks the capacity, he's, he's not strong enough, but because he's, his integrity will not permit it. Mm. He can as much lie as you can breathe underwater unassisted, contrary to his nature. And if God promises something and he swears an oath, then there's a double guarantee of truth there. And why does he do this? We who have, so that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Whatever the God has promised us is an unchangeably true promise. Whatever God has promised to us, he has guaranteed and it will with absolute certainty come true. And although the um, 
argument isn't made here explicitly yet. With Abraham, it was God saying so and swearing and, and adding an oath. He swore by himself. But with Jesus, we have something better. Because we have the promise sealed by Jesus' shedding of blood. As you will all remember from your Hebrew lessons in primary school, the verb for making a covenant in Hebrew is cut. You don't make a covenant, you cut a covenant. Mm -hmm. And it is thought that the reason uh, behind that is the kind of the history of that is that covenants were sealed or they were, they were sort of uh, formalized by the slaughter of an animal which was then cooked and and eaten at at a kind of ceremonial meal. And part of that was that this animal was slain and both parties would partake in this by saying, and, and, and thereby said, so be done to me if I default on this promise, if I let down my side of this covenant. And Jesus says of himself that his blood is the blood of the covenant. The shedding of Jesus' blood was God's firm oath a blood oath that he will surely carry out what he has promised. So Jesus' shedding of his blood is God's oath, which, if there can be such a thing, is a more powerful promise than the one that Abraham received. So that we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us, who have fled for refuge. Now, what is this refuge? Because we are guilty. We are guilty, that's why we need, but what is, what is the refuge to which we have fled? God's promise, I think. Sorry? God's promise again. Yes. Or for forgiveness, steadfastness, his steadfastness to us. Uh, Erica? Is it Jesus himself? What is it in the text? What is it in the actual text? All these answers you give me are correct, by the way. I'm not saying you're wrong. But there's a very specific specific answer in the text. Safe haven? No, refuge? What is the safe haven? Anchor of the soul. Nearly. Same verse. The inner place behind the curtain. Oh. What is the inner place behind the curtain? The uh, holy of holies in the tabernacle. That's right, the holy holies in the tabernacle, where yeah. the high priest enters. So we are now about to embark on a, on a long argument in beginning of chapter seven, but we have fled for refuge. You know, you know the expression sanctuary, you know, of people offering or seeking sanctuary. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to, I think, a medieval custom where, you know, people would flee to a church and while they're in there, if the, the church took them under their protection, they would be safe there. 
and it used to be even in law. It's not, I don't think it's true anymore, but I know I was in another country uh, some, some years ago and there were Christians, Christian asylum seekers who were under threat of expulsion from the country back to Muslim country where they would, where were in risk of life and limb because they're converted away from Islam and they would very likely come to harm. And so the local, a, a local Christian church was housing them in the basement of the church and they lived there and basically they had people from the congregation on duty all the time taking turns so that if the police came they would guard the doors basically call everybody and they would physically barricade these these ref- asylum seekers in the church so that so as to give them sanctuary but this idea of the sanctuary of course the word sanctuary originally comes from the tabernacle the holy it's, it's the place the the sacred the holy place where where uh where worship takes place and we are told this is we have fed for refuge from all that threatens us into the inner place behind the curtain the holy of holies the place where which is god's dwelling place where no one is allowed to enter except the high priest but we have now taken that as our place of refuge is that what um, Paul means when we're seated with him in the heavenly places in Ephesians? Can you repeat that again? Sorry. So is that what is that what Paul means when he says in Ephesians we're seated with him in the heavenly places? Yes. Yes. Because oh. we are in Christ, and so where Christ is, there we are too. We so that's why when when you said uh, one one or more of you said that take refuge is, is actually Jesus. Yes, it is Jesus because we go to him. But where we go, where it is where he is that's so significant. Jesus is no longer uh, weak and hum, uh, humble and vulnerable in the world. He now is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So when we take refuge in him, we take refuge in the Holy of Holies, of which the earthly Holy of Holies, as we will learn, is just a picture and an image. We, go, we actually take refuge in the real thing. And we have this as they said, the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Now, as somebody who has spent quite a few nights in anchor on a boat in my lifetime, I can tell you that a sure and steadfast anchor is a thing to be valued. Yeah. You know, if you're living, if you're on a boat and you're, you're asleep, if, if you suddenly start, if, if your anchor begins to give way, you are, you need a swift action. I remember many, very, very many, many years ago now, uh, <clears throat> on a, on a sailing trip and we took, uh, refuge from a pretty, pretty sturdy wind in a hall, in a sort of inside a horseshoe shaped island and lay anchor and went to bed and then, you know, went, went to sleep and that was a calm, but in the night the wind turned and began to blow in uh, at us and remember waking up. And all of a sudden the boat was moving in a way that did not feel right. And as we looked out of the window, we saw that the shore was fast approaching. Anchor had failed. And then when the anchor fails, you're in trouble. And you need to act quickly. And this is the uh, the opposite of it. We have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. This is one that will not fail. There is no change of weather that can risk you, obviously. The, the wind will not blow in such a way. No wind can blow, no storm can come and dislodge this sure fixed point. 
you're safe. You're completely safe. No drifting. Because we have entered into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Having become a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. So we are following Jesus. And if we imitate the saints and imitate Jesus, then we, we end up going where he has gone before. And he's the high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And just like before, this conclusion is a bit like uh, those of you who like, who like, uh, um, uh, classical music, but one of the, one of the very striking things about the music of J.S. Bach, uh, the great composer is that he writes, you know, when, when we see, usually when music, you've got a phrase, it starts and it ends. Rock of ages, clap for me, let me hide myself in the end. And the next phrase does. What, what, what Bach does in his, in his music tends to be the, that the end of one phrase is already the beginning of the next one. You never get to take a breath. And it kind of, it's, he's got this wonderful drive as a result. Well, this is a bit like Bach's music. We come to the end of this argument and say, Jesus, we go and we take a sanctuary, uh, refuge in the place where Jesus has gone because he's the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, which by the way is the next is is what we're going to be talking about next. So we are, this is the introduction. He leads us into the next topic, um, which will take up uh, the next uh, several chapters. So we will be talking about Jesus' high priestly office, and you'll all learn to pronounce Melchizedek with great confidence uh, by the end of it as well, uh, because we will get to repeat it lots and lots. But that's the end of uh, end of that. So what you see there is that you start with this really stern warning, but that is like a squall that blows over, and then it is very quickly replaced by holding out of hope, because the the the, the what these people and what Christians need is not try harder, be more like this, but rather saying this is why. It's worth it all. This is what the prize is. This is why endurance really is worth it. And that brings us to the end of the chapter, as far as I'm concerned. We've got a couple of minutes left. Um, so in those couple of minutes, over to you for your questions, comments, and insights. Nothing at all. Well, I just said the priest yeah. after the order of Melchizedek. Were there any more? Yes, there's one other. Jesus. Well, the order of Jesus is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. It's the other order of high priests. The Aaronic one. Yes, high priesthood after the order of Aaron. And so the, those are the two and, 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 the whole of the next uh, next section uh, will be uh, dealing with the distinction. What is the difference between the two kinds of high priests? There's Melchizedek, there's Aaron. And why is Jesus like one, not the other? And why is that superior to the other? Who is Melchizedek um, related to? How did he become him? 
We are about to find out. I'm 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 going to keep in suspense for a whole week and and not mm-hmm. answer. The whole of the next the the whole purpose. I mean, if you want to, um, uh, excuse me, um, if you want to um, uh, read up about him, it's Genesis 14. Mm-hmm. But you have to read it slowly because if you read it quickly, you is you blink, he's gone. Oh, right. But that's part of the point. But we'll we'll find out all about Melchizedek next week. Right. Anything else? Well, if not, uh, we will close with prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the sure and certain hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you that he has gone ahead of us to prepare a place for us and that in him we have refuge from all the storms and troubles of this life and this world. We pray that you give us steadfastness, perseverance in holding on to this hope, that by the power of your Holy Spirit and the guidance of your word, our lives would be fruitful in your kingdom, that we never forsake the gifts that we have received, but rather those gifts would take root in our lives and bear fruit unto eternal life. And so may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.